Pie in the Sky Media. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, so it's the early 90s. It sounds like this is a pretty nice suburban neighborhood. Was there a lot of crime? Like, what did this do to the community? I mean, and and that's got to be a tough scene for investigators to deal with, right? It was probably, if not the worst um, and most horrific crime that had happened in the state of Arizona. Um, So I I think it sent shockwaves. Um, And I've talked to numerous people over the years who've told me, hey, I I grew up during that time and I remember my parents wouldn't let me go, you know, along the canal or I couldn't exercise or I couldn't do this and that. So I I think, again, it sent this, uh, what I call it, just just a wave of fear um, amongst the community. I mean, this was uh, completely horrific. And uh, again, to, to uh, dismember or to behead uh, young, person and then take the head with him um, was uh, beyond uh, anything we had seen. Welcome back to Criminal Mischief with Carolyn and Brandon. You're listening to episode 71, The Zombie Hunter. I'm just thinking the early 90s, I'm wondering when that movie came out, like seven. Were these details released to the public about the severed head and have it how it was stored? I mean, this had to send shockwaves of fear, not only through the community, but through law enforcement itself. Like, we got to catch this guy. Seven was released. I, if I, my memory serves me correctly. It was uh, 95, 96, but I'd have to. to oh, okay. So that was after. Okay, okay. Yeah, but one of the things that we kind of ran across was uh, Silence of the Lambs was uh, 91, I believe. Um, and there were some parallels here with kind of what what went on in, in that movie. So, you know, yeah, it's 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 uh, kind of interesting to go down down those paths to see to try to put yourself uh, what what the perpetrator was thinking or or trying to do. It rubs the lotion on its skin. It does this whenever it's told. <laughs> Mister, my family will pay cash. Whatever ransom you're asking for, they'll pay it. It rubs the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. Yes, you will, precious. You will get the hose. Okay, okay, okay. Now it places the lotion in the basket. Please. Oh, my God, please. Please. It places the lotion in the basket. I want to see my mommy. Put the fucking lotion in the basket. This week's episode takes place in Arizona in the early 1990s, where Angela Brasso, a transplant from Pennsylvania, was making her way. She was bright and ambitious. She'd moved across the country to study at DeVry University in Los Angeles. After that, she'd been offered a job in Phoenix as a trainer for a tech company. Troy, last name's Hillman, H-I-L-L-M-A-N, and uh, my title was um, a retired detective sergeant with the uh, Phoenix Police Department. Troy says that Angela had moved to Arizona in June of 1992. So Angela was a, um, a, a very well-respected, um, intelligent 
woman who had just entered the workforce. Um, she went to DeVry in New Jersey. That's where she met Joe. Um, she transferred out to LA to finish up her DeVry studies because they offered a particular type of uh, training or I guess certification that New Jersey didn't offer. Um, was well liked in LA and then moved over here to Phoenix. Angela lived with her boyfriend, Joe, in an apartment near a recreational bike and jogging path that ran along a roughly 50-mile canal, which snaked through the city of Phoenix. It was a Sunday evening on November 8, 1992. Angela had the jitters, the good kind. She'd been working so hard on presenting her very first training class at work. She was an avid bike rider, something she often did with Joe and without him. But that night, Joe stayed behind to bake her a cake for her 22nd birthday, which just so happened to be the next day. When Angela left her apartment that night at dusk, there was a full moon as she rode off toward the path along the canal. It wasn't going to be a long one, just a quick ride, get the endorphins flowing. She knew she had to get a good night's rest for her big day tomorrow at work. When Joe was done baking the cake, he started to get a little bit worried because Angela hadn't returned. He kept looking at the clock because they were going to watch a TV show together, and she still wasn't home after the program had already started, prompting him to go look for Angela. He hopped on his bike and went along the route that they normally took. Maybe her chain had busted off or she got a flat tire. But as he kept riding, he didn't run into her on the path. He started to doubt himself. Maybe she took another route and she was already back home waiting for him. So he doubled back, but Angela wasn't there. He waited some more and then went out on his bike for a second time at around 11 o'clock that night. He couldn't find her anywhere. And when he returned for the second time, he called 911. So in uh, November of 1992, a 22-year-old female by the name of Angela Brasso went for a bike ride at dusk um, in North Phoenix. And it was uh, really kind of a, not a bad area of town. Um, And it was a a recreational uh, bike path. It was frequent in but at, at that time, uh, Phoenix has obviously grown since that time, but it still was pretty busy, a pretty pretty large town. So she went for a bike ride uh, again at dusk and never, never came back. And her fiance, who was actually baking her a birthday cake, uh, it was her 22nd birthday next day, she never came back, so ended up calling the police. The next morning, a Monday, remember, Angela had that huge training class she'd been so excited about. Her co-workers were surprised when she was a no-show. It just wasn't like her. But they didn't know anything about her not returning home from that bike ride. However, a co-worker noticed that Angela's phone kept ringing at her desk. And so she went and picked it up. It was Angela's frantic mother asking to speak with her daughter and was informed that she wasn't there. Police had started canvassing the area that morning looking for Angela. Near her home, they discovered a blood trail. It led from the canal path up into the dirt, off the pavement. Even though the canal path was really popular, there was a duality to the place because there were many pockets of privacy, places where if one was so inclined, they could secretly stalk their prey, hiding behind the raised bank that bordered the water. He drug her to a tree area along the path, and then from that, he drug her up a berm area. 
So it was, would have been secluded. Um, I think it was a full moon, if my memory serves me correctly, that night. So it was slightly, there was some lighting, but it was kind of a deserted area just east of her apartment complex. And so that's where he spent a lot of time with her on that, that berm area. When the officers followed that blood trail, they were horrified by what they would find. Uh, she was found um, pretty close, actually, to her apartment complex. And it was uh, a pretty grotesque scene um, up, up on a berm. Um, she, Angel was, was laying there, um, and she was nude except for her socks. Uh, her clothing was kind of strewn about her body, uh, and, and she, she'd been beheaded, and the, the head was, was not at the scene. When detectives arrived at the scene, what the killer had done to Angela had left seasoned investigators walking around in a stupor as they exchanged stunned looks of disbelief. It was incomprehensible. What was troubling was it looked like, and, and we still to this day don't know, um, but the perpetrator somehow uh, either surprised her with a blitz-style attack. It was a single knife wound to the back, which immediately uh, collapsed her lung. He drove it into her aorta and then the heart, um, and she uh, obviously expired shortly thereafter, which is good because she didn't suffer. But uh, so that that was something that we looked at and but we didn't know if he he used a ruse and got her to stop um, the Ted Bundy. I've got a broken arm um, kind of thing or, um, you know, maybe a security posing as law enforcement. Um, for some reason, she stopped and it did not appear to be a lot of defensive wounds on her body. There were there were drag wounds um, and other um, postmortem um, activity but she was basically almost, he almost tried to cut her in half besides uh, beheading her. And then he drove what appeared to be stakes into her female areas that uh, on her body where the, typically uh, where the reproductive organs are. So it, it, again, it was, it was absolutely heinous. Investigators started to peel back the layers of Angela's life. She'd been dating her boyfriend, Joe, for over a year and a half. They had rented that apartment together, and right away, there were some red flags. So Angela, the victim, was originally from Pennsylvania, um, and her mother was back in Pennsylvania. So her mother called several times during the night, kind of uh, frantic, because this was not like Angela to just not not check in. Um, and uh, Joe ended up uh, calling the police uh, later that evening after he had searched several times. Uh, and then again in the morning. So she was, this was her live-in boyfriend. Yeah, and and again, they, I think they planned on getting married, although we in our investigation discovered that there were some discrepancies in what was going on in Angela's life versus what was going on in Joe's life and their perceptions. But during their initial interview with Joe, he adamantly denied having anything to do with Angela's murder. He would say that he loved her and that they had plans to get married. As detectives continue to interview those closest to Angela, they are also searching the area around the canal. Ten days after Angela was murdered, the head is end up uh, was found in, in a canal. So this guy obviously was doing things to taunt the police and to send uh, shock into the community. Some indication and belief uh, that the head had been either refrigerated or put in a freezer, which was uh, really disturbing because the, the decomposition of the head was not consistent with 10 days. Um, so they, they called military experts to see, you know, they measured the water temperature, that kind of thing. Um, so that was disturbing. Investigators were terrified. They worried that the killer had a larger agenda. Remember, the movie Silence of the Lambs 
a film about a deranged serial killer came out in February of 1991. I'm just thinking the early 90s, I'm wondering when that movie came out, like seven. Like what, I mean, were these details released to the public about the severed head and have it how it was stored for 10, you know, for, you know, ref refrigerated? I mean, this had to send shockwaves of fear, not only through the community, but through law enforcement itself. Like we got to catch this guy. I think seven was released. I, if I, my memory serves me correctly, it was uh, 95, 96, but I'd have to. to oh, okay. That. So that was after. Okay. okay. Yeah. But one of the things that we kind of ran across was uh, Silence of the Lambs was uh, 91, I believe. Um, and there was some parallels here with kind of what, what went on in, in that movie. Um, so, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, kind of interesting to go down, down those paths to see to try to put yourself uh, what, what the perpetrator was thinking or, or trying to do. Investigators had to wonder if they were dealing with a killer who was doing more than just taunting the police. Why had he taken the chance to bring back the severed head that had been refrigerated? That was a huge risk. Grappling with that scene, detectives, given the brutality of the murder, all that rage, they believed it was personal, that the killer had been close to Angela. They were looking hard at Joe. Angela's boyfriend. He would be questioned multiple times, and they went at him hard. First, Angela's mother was extremely suspicious. She wasn't convinced that he didn't have something to do with her daughter's murder. I think Angela's mother um, was not a big fan, um, and she uh, let that be known from the start to the original investigators. So that was one uh, kind of a, a strike against him. Another question? How do you explain? inviting another woman over to the apartment that he shared with Angela to help him find his missing girlfriend because he said he didn't want to be alone? Another was he invited over a person to help him look for Angela, um, but that person was actually a female who he claimed was his financial advisor. And it was just kind of an odd situation to Angela goes missing, his girlfriend, fiance, whatever you want to call it. And then the next thing you know, you invite another female who nobody seems to know uh, comes over and, and looks for Angela. That was weird. Um, and investigators kind of took that as a, that's kind of strange behavior. The third circumstantial strike against him was the way Joe had described his relationship with Angela, which was completely different than the way Angela had described what was going on between the two of them to her close confidants and her mother. Joe claimed that their relationship was very, um, it was great. Um, they were having a good time. He was baking the cake. He loved her. Things were moving forward. They saw a future together. And that was very perpendicular to what Angela told her colleagues at work. Um, she was planning on moving out. She told her mother that he was abusive, uh, controlling, that kind of thing. Um, so again, these things are running. They don't make sense. And so investigators pull him in multiple times and have multiple conversations. The killer had left his semen behind. But DNA, as a tool for law enforcement, was still in its infancy. Pre-DNA. They couldn't get a, a swab and, and do a rapid DNA or clear him at that time. So um, all they could do was this thing called ABO typing with blood. Um, and, but that wasn't a clear indicator of whether or not somebody did it or did not do it. So it was pre-DNA. So was that semen was left behind in her? And so that's how they were able to do the... the, the blood type with that or? So it was semen left on her clothing and uh, kind of strewn about the body. Um, and so um, the ABO typing was just, again, it was, I, I don't 
know a whole lot about the science. I've had to rely on one of my best friends, Kelly, that I, the DNA supervisor. Um, but I just know it was in existence and I knew it wasn't, again, it wasn't, DNA is the awesome thing that we have technology to solve crimes and, and it was not near what we had now. So, so poor Joe was, was looked at um, and then he was, he was ruled out, I, I believe within that next year, um, 93. Um, because DNA was starting to take off kind of on a very micro basis. There was another person of interest that police wanted to speak with. Angela's former professor from DeVry University in Los Angeles. They'd found out from the people that they had been interviewing that this teacher had a crush on her. And the fact is, she'd actually been in L.A. and had visited with this teacher just a few days before she'd been murdered prompting investigators to drive out to Los Angeles to interview him. But there was no evidence tying him to the case. Even so, he wasn't eliminated from their list. Without a clear suspect, investigators were left doing the shoe leather detective work, canvassing, talking to people, trying to make connections that would lead them closer to the killer. But the months would roll on, and they weren't any closer to finding anyone. In September of 1993, 10 months after Angela had been brutally murdered, 17-year-old Melanie Burness would go for a bike ride on the canal. Melanie was a uh, junior at a Arcadia High School in Phoenix on the east side. Uh, was really well-liked, had best friends, dated a little bit, but didn't have a serious boyfriend. Um, she worked at a, a yogurt stand. Uh, was just a really good kid. Had uh, She was the baby of the family. I believe she had uh, two older sisters and a brother who'd moved out of the house. Just a, a really good person. Her family had gone through, her parents divorced, so she was kind of dealing with that. Um, she played sports. Uh, I believe she played volleyball. She was taller. So it just, yeah, just a well-rounded good person and uh, had a, a great friend base. That night, Melanie had planned to go riding with a friend, but at the last minute, they canceled. So Melanie went alone. Uh, her mother had gone out to dinner um, and had last seen her. And then uh, Melanie, uh, apparently, her mother, when she came home, Melanie was not there. Um, and Melanie's bike was missing. And Melanie rode that canal. Um, and it was about 10 miles that she she rode. And um, But she she wanted exercise and, and she need, she felt like she needed to get the exercise. So I guess that's why why she went. Um, yeah. Well, so and like you said, it was a, it was a place where it's not like it was secluded. Like y you would feel safe there, right? Yeah. Um, coming off of what had happened to the first victim, uh, you know, 10 months earlier. So there was this kind of shroud um, of fear still around the valley because the uh, perpetrator had not been caught. Um, so, um, you know, but I, I think when you're a teenager, sometimes and I did the same thing you feel kind of invincible, um, and that maybe he had moved on, um, because he had not struck in, in 10 months. Melanie's mother returned home at around nine o'clock after going out to dinner. She started to panic when she saw that Melanie wasn't home and that her bike was missing. Yeah. So her, her mother, Marlene, when she got home from dinner, I, I think it was around between nine and 10, 
uh, was frantic because Melanie was not there. It was uncharacteristic and uh, thought that maybe Melanie went uh, with one of her friends if she had gone biking. So she went on kind of a, a search and she did call it contact the police. As, as you know, it takes a while sometimes. She was 17. Usually, usually there's, hey, maybe she went and did this or maybe he's with some friends. And so, um, but the police did, did respond. The next morning, a family was riding their bikes on the canal path. A mom would see a puddle. It had a sheen to it, a thickness, that made her feel like it just wasn't water. She walked over to it and then looked at the nearby area, looked at the puddle and wondered, was that blood? Close to it, she saw skids on the path, like drag marks, leading away. She was too afraid to follow, worried about what she might find. She called 911, and officers would arrive at the scene, and they followed the drag marks that would eventually lead them to a woman's body floating in the canal. The police did, did respond, and, and she wasn't actually found until a, um, both a, a bicyclist and a jogger rode through a blood path on the canal the next morning. And that's when uh, the call came in, officers respond, find the blood path. What was disturbing about this is she was found floating in a uh, bodysuit, which was did not belong to her, um, in the canal. Melanie, like Angela, had been stabbed once in the back in what appeared to be exactly the same blitz-style attack. Same exact stab wound as the first victim. Um, he drove it into her back, collapsed her lung, aorta, and then heart, and then drug her a couple hundred feet um, into a... Uh, so he, he liked to operate around something that we kind of focused on as a cold case around this tunnel. And this tunnel went underneath the freeway in this particular case. So he, there was a, a kind of a recessed area with with vegetation around it. So he, he drug Melanie up over a curb. There was some blood. It looked like he had he'd paused for a while and she bled more and then drug her into this, uh, what we call oleanders in this, this area. And that's where he post-mortem raped her and then uh, redressed her. And then he he carved what we thought, we still don't know to this day, but he carved what looked like initials into her, in her, her chest area, and a cross with uh, several dots in it, which is something, again, we tried to focus on and figure out um, what he was trying to tell us. And then he decided to pull her, after he had her in a bodysuit, into the canal area, about another 100 feet. And again, this is a deceased person, and they're, they're not light. Anybody that's tried to, person that's passed out or deceased or move, it's just, it's that's a heavy person. And for this person to be able to drag both women around for this amount, this distance was, um, again, conjured up a John Rambo militaristic kind of badass that um, had this uh, strength and uh, this kind of precision kill technique. The fact that the killer had appeared to bring a child-sized bodysuit with him and then dressed Melanie in it post-mortem was a huge psychological clue. This was physical evidence that was a tie to the killer. So when you say bodysuit, what do you mean by that? So it was uh, it was designed, it was almost like a, uh, a one-piece uh, swimwear, but it was, it was designated as a bodysuit by Park Lane. Um, but it was designed for a, a small child. And, and Melanie was a well-developed 17-year-old female. So, you know, when, when she was found, her, 
her, her breast area was kind of protruding and um, it was just obvious that it was pulled up and it was obvious that it was not her bodysuit. And it was obvious that the perpetrator had brought that with them to the crime scene and redressed her post-mortem. Wow. So he went, it's believed that he was looking for another victim, waited until he found what he was looking for and had brought this bodysuit already with him and then murdered her. Is this like a bunch of grass around? Is this like a very secluded area? Like set up this? It literally it was just east of the I-17 freeway, which goes, um, kind of originates in, in Phoenix and goes all the way up through Flagstaff. And um, it, it kind of, uh, you know, is a major interstate and it's just east um, and near a major mall called Metro Center Mall, uh, which is just northeast. And these uh, bike paths uh, kind of parallel the canal system, which goes kind of that northwest through, cuts northwest through Phoenix. So yeah, this isn't rural. This isn't uh, secluded. Um, this was very brazen. And there were a series of steps that the perpetrator did um, that put him at greater risk, which was inexplicable even to this day of why he did certain things to deliberately place her in the water after postmortem, I mean, he just did things that would, again, put him at greater risk of being found. And then the fact that he wasn't seen at either crime scene, uh, both Angela, the first victim, and Melanie, the second victim, was, again, ex inexplicable because uh, it just, to, he spent a lot of time with both girls. As investigators canvassed the area, they would find some of Melanie's clothing at a nearby credit union. DNA would be collected by experts, but the technology wasn't advanced enough to prove if it was the same suspect in Angela and Melanie's murders. So the perpetrator had left an article of clothing of Melanie's across the freeway, kind of a, a bridge that was kind of going across the freeway, and then uh, investigators found uh, her the more of her clothing inside of a dumpster to that credit union. So the credit union's closed, there's some hotels and restaurants, they're all closed. You have a, a mall and a castles and coasters um, complex, uh, kind of northwest. Those are all closed. So really, you didn't have anybody to talk to other than canvas the area. And where was the DNA found from Melanie if she was submerged? So they did a, a, a sexual assault kit examination on Melanie, and it did come back positive for semen. Um, and it was also found on uh, the, the bodysuit and some of the clothing. The pressure on law enforcement to find the killer was intense. The canal, once an enjoyable site for exercise, walking or bike riding, became synonymous with horror and panic, especially knowing the impact that the movie Silence of the Lambs had on the public. Fear of the killer was at a fever pitch, and law enforcement had to tread carefully. They wanted to warn the public, so they'd be aware. But they also didn't want to cause a panic or jeopardize the investigation by releasing vital information. They would share some details, that the killer had thrown Melanie's clothes away in a nearby dumpster, hoping witnesses would come forward, and that he dressed her in an ill-fitting bodysuit meant for a child that he'd brought to the scene that they would describe as a turquoise child-sized bodysuit. It was evident to investigators that the same man murdered both victims but they really wanted to be careful about connecting these two cases in the media because they didn't want people to freak out more than they already were. So there was never a question in, in the investigators' minds. I mean, they were thinking this is the same guy. He may have, his MO may have changed, but he, or his signature or whatever, but he is, he is the same guy. 
Well, I, I think they tried to um, not go on and on about it because that would instill more fear and panic in the community and they'd want answers and they were doing the best job they could. They, they did, uh, looking back from, from my perspective, from a cold case perspective, they did a heck of a job both at the scene and the case. Um, so I, can, I can't imagine the pressure that was that was on them to find this guy. So I, I think that one of the commonalities between both girls is they both had their shoes and socks on. So you've got the similar stab wound and you've got shoes and socks on. But yeah, you have some divergence in his, what we the profiler said, his fantasy. You know, he didn't do the exact same thing. And there's, there's a, why did he do this? Why was he so violent? with Angela, the first victim. And then he was, uh, again, it was obviously violent and he killed her and then he carved with the second victim, but he didn't behead her or he didn't try to saw her in half or anything like that. The FBI would put together a profile on the killer. It was believed, based on the way the victims were murdered, that the person capable of doing this would be like a John Rambo style who'd been trained in the military, especially with that very specific ambush before plunging the knife through their backs, essentially killing them immediately. Because it seems like there's a lot going on. If he was trying to cut her in half, he did take off her head. You know, he's driving stakes into her. I mean, there's this is some serious rage. Absolutely. And so our, our kind of working theory from a cold case perspective years later was he was in the military this type of precise kill on that type of recreational bike path at night without being found. He was very, again, precise in his kill. So, but I also think that the, so the FBI did a profile on Angela's murder and then a second murder combined. And they basically said that it was, they believed it was a a blitz style attack. Um, They believed it was uh, uh, the victims were both from uh, victims of opportunity they were not known by the perpetrator. Um, they believe that the uh, perpetrator was largely disorganized, but he had some organization um, in that he brought the knife and took the bikes and that kind of thing. And then the, the, the most compelling thing that I read from the FBI was that killer would not stop. But it appeared that the killer had stopped, prompting a working theory that he'd either moved on, went to prison, or was dead. The FBI didn't start the CODIS database until I believe 1999 or 2000. So it wasn't uploaded into that uh, database where it could start searching until 99, 2000. Um, but then even then it didn't uh, hit any, any perpetrator in that system. So they knew that the same person had murdered Angela and Melanie. But the fact that they weren't getting a hit in CODIS meant he wasn't in the database. At the time, it was the one physical piece of evidence they had connecting him to the case. Find the person with that genetic profile, and you'd find your killer. They had a mountain of paperwork, interviews, tips, people questioned, but nothing in the files appeared to point investigators in a direction that would lead to the killer. Because from the very beginning, Phoenix PD was inundated with tips in both cases, which they heavily investigated. Tips flooded in across the country from law enforcement, from other other agencies. Um, People would call in. And sometimes they're very bizarre tips. So there were probably 800 to 1,000 tips that came in during that time frame. Uh, the original case agent, Russ Davis, he retired in 97. Um, and then the case agent uh, or the scene agent, uh, Mike, uh, he ended up keeping the case. So yeah, it, it, uh, they tried to revive it, I think, in the media times, but it was just kind of that, uh, just there was just nobody to, there was no post-crime behavior that they could find. There's, they couldn't find any pre-crime behavior. 
uh, because you typically don't start off with this level of violence with beheading and cutting in half and that kind of thing. And then uh, there was nothing on the back end. So yeah, it was, it was cold. The case would warm up again when the Phoenix Police Department put together a cold case unit and Troy was the sergeant in charge. I was lucky because when I took over the squad in 08, 2008, there were two detectives. So I had a great lieutenant commander chief that basically saw the value in cold cases. And, and what I always say now, kind of my motto is cold cases matter. And they do. We can't turn your backs on these people at the year mark. You can't also have the current homicide detectives. They're, they're buried. They're getting case after case after case. You can't expect them to go back and review cases. So you, you need a talented, hardworking, hungry, passionate cold case squad uh, and a sergeant that cares too. Troy knew about the so-called canal murders, but he really didn't know a lot about the case until he was tasked with putting together records for a media request on the investigation. Public records request, they wanted everything um, in detail on both murders. And who was they? The, the media. Um, they wanted to do a, a feature on it. Um, and, and that's fine. We're, we're cooperate with the media on that kind of thing. But we also don't want to release too much information because you get false, conf false confessions. It ties up people, it ties up detectives and that kind of thing. So, okay, so this, um, is, this is great. Hold on a second. So you get this public records request from the media because I give a, it's like the shoes on the other foot because, you know, as somebody who's requesting these all the time. So then they they identify you to put all these things together. So you have to go through everything and you have to make sure that you're only giving them the stuff that is okay to give because it's an active investigation. Like you actually didn't have to give them anything, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a, the public, it depends on the state, on the public records law, um, but uh, our attorneys kind of want us to give, cooperate as much as possible. And we do, we do, we want the media, the kind of that give and take relationship, but we've also had, again, a series of false confessions. We've had things, um, that have put us in a bad spot. So we want to hold some of that stuff back to the vest or close to the vest so that when we do have information, we can basically uh, know we're dealing with the right guy. So when we go into the interview, we'll, hey, hey, have all the facts and kind of have held, had those held back. I love that because, you know, a lot of times in cases like this where it's colder than cold and you are kind of breathing life into it because you're probably seeing it for the first time when you when that public records request was made. Did you really know that much about it? I had actually met um, Melanie's the second victim's mother um, when the case was passed along to my squad uh, a year or so earlier when that the scene agent retired. But I, I didn't know a whole lot about it, and I just knew it was massive. And, and again, when I when I printed it out, I think the uh, admin secretary kind of uh, gave me gave me fits because it it almost it was reams and reams of paper. And um, it it took me, <laughs> I read it from word by word. And uh, again, the the level of shock and um, it's just like how how did we not find this guy? How did he just disappear? How, <laughs> where is he? Um, and those were all questions I had. And so then when we assembled the team, it was questions we, we all had. And so we embarked on this journey. But I'll, I'll say we also had 2,500 cold cases that we were trying to manage. So those didn't stop. And I had, I uh, believe at the time, uh, five or six detectives. So we were trying to manage all those cases. And, and we didn't want to send the message out to the, the loved ones of those victims that, hey, we're, we're giving up on them all to put everything we have into the canal murders. So we really had a balancing act. Sometimes in life, a group organically coalesces. A strong leader is selected who has a clear vision and passion and an infectious energy 
which engenders dedication and teamwork. Putting together that media request had been daunting, but Troy was actually trained as an accountant before he became a cop. So he took a real analytical eye as he looked at a room full of files, basically 800 people who'd been interviewed and questioned. He tackled the task methodically. He knew the first thing that needed to happen was everything needed to be organized before they could actually undertake a massive evidence review. Fresh eyes on a decades-old case. Troy says the case became personal to him immediately after he read the reports detailing what the killer had done to Angela and Melanie, how he'd gotten away with it. I personally became obsessed with the canal murders. It's kind of boring sometimes being a manager, sergeant. Um, and I was, I'd been a sergeant for a long time, so I knew how to do the job. So I spent a lot of time researching clues, trying to figure out um, what else uh, girls with, with socks and shoes left on at other parts of the country. Um, I, I became this internet sleuth of a sorts. Um, and uh, my team also became kind of quasi-obsessed with it because it was, uh, we, we wanted to nail this guy. I mean, it was over the top what he had done to these two women uh, who had their whole lives ahead of them. So the cold case murder squad had rolled up their sleeves. They organized the entire case file from top to bottom, which would take time. Then they focused their attention on locating the persons of interest that had been noted in the files. They had the killer's DNA. Now they just needed to find him. Which meant collecting the DNA of the men on their persons of interest list. But first, they would need to track them down. And then collect their DNA. Which would either eliminate them or, at long last, unmask the killer. One of the persons of interest at the very top of the list was Angela's former professor. Remember, he'd seemed extremely close to her. In the days before she was murdered, she'd actually gotten back from a trip where she went to L.A., which is where he lived, and met up with him. They'd never taken the teacher off of their list. He'd been a major in the Army Special Forces, which was in line with the profile kind of the tools of the trade and cold case is we go back to the original report and say, who did we miss? Um, and again, we're pre-DNA at that time. So one of the guys who stuck out like a sore thumb was Angela, the first victim's uh, professor over at DeVry in LA. She had just visited him and he had made some, what we thought were really strange statements to the original investigators. Um, and uh, had also been a, a source of a, of, of a tip that said every time her name is mentioned, he goes hysterically, starts crying and acts really weird. Uh, we find out he's a major in the special forces. Um, we find out that uh, uh, that basically he had just made comments. They called her a virgin and he gave her a lingering hug and she had visited him in his trailer. And it just all said, we need to get this guy's DNA. So we flew back to, I believe it was Maryland. Um, and he, he was cooperative. We got his DNA, but kind of, kind of weird um, in terms of he has a machete behind his, his door when the detectives go out there with local law enforcement. Um, so we got excited about him. We were like, wow, this, you know, this, he was right there in the files, right there in our, our report and got the call a couple weeks later from the lab. And, and Kelly said, the DNA supervisor said, hey, Troy, it's, it's not him. After the teacher was crossed off the list, it would take time to find the over 20 other persons of interest. Meantime, Troy would reach out to the VDOC Society, which was an organization founded in Philadelphia in 1990. It was named after Eugene Francois Vidoc, who was considered to be the first modern detective. The VDOC Society is made up of a collection of Sherlock Holmes, 
the creme de la creme of forensic experts, detectives, essentially elite investigators who provide pro bono expertise to law enforcement agencies across the United States, men and women who are working diligently to solve their cold case homicides. Myself and two detectives flew back and because I wasn't going to miss it. I paid on my personal dollar. I said, you know, I want to send these two, Marianne and William, which were two of my stellar detectives, uh, were the two case agents. And I, I said, I'm go, I asked the city, Hey, would you pay for it? You know, if I go and they said, you know, no, we don't only two. Um, so I said, you know, I'm, I'm going back. Um, I was lucky they gave me vacation time, but, uh, we, we go and it's a very prestigious, the old historic courthouse in Philadelphia. The group is phenomenal. Um, I always call them the upper echelon of law enforcement. It's like a think tank of FBI, NCIS, uh, professors, um, just people of every uh, religious scholars. Um, and they, they were just uh, kind of intimidating to go back because we were not really taught this kind of uh, how to hunt a serial killer in Homicide 101. Um, so that we were, we knew we were out outmatched. Um, so we were looking at that point, that was 2013. We were looking for all the help we could get. The cold case team would give a presentation on the canal murders. Richard Walter and the VDOC Society were helpful. And one of the things he said after berating us for not showing the photos quick enough, he said, Troy, he's in your files. 97% of the time you're dealing with a uh, Dahmer, you're dealing with a Bundy subtype, he called it, and anger excitement. And he said, he is in your files. And he also taught us something called the helix, which is how they work their way up, a typical guy. And, and I asked him, I said, well, where would this guy end up? And he said, he's either, he's either dead in prison, mental institution, or cannibal, and you'll never find the bodies. And um, so that was disturbing. And, but one of the, again, he told us he's in your files. He taught, taught us what to look for in terms of this guy's development. So they get back home to Phoenix and they take the advice of the VDOC society. They start going through the files, the tips and witness statements, which equated to about 800 men they need to look into more deeply. We get back, um, we, we continue to isolate the files. Um, one of my detectives was working the A's forward on this list of 800 people. I was working the Z's and we were going to meet in the middle. So investigators are working their way to the middle of the alphabet when Troy would get a message in the fall of 2014. A Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick wanted to speak to him about something he'd never heard of before. It was called genetic genealogy. And one of my detectives, Marianne, got it. And she said, boss, there's this really kind of bizarre phone call. I'm going to pass it along to you, this voicemail. So I listened to it. And this woman said, my name is Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick. I work for a company called Identifinders. And she said, I think I can help you. Um, there's this new technology, genetic genealogy. Um, and I can, you can, we can apply what I've been helping the military with and other limited law enforcement to your cases. Um, she was lecturing at a nearby hotel. I called up my friend uh, Kelly at the crime lab, the DNA supervisor, and I said, Kelly, I said, I don't, I don't really know what to think of this phone call. I mean, we're talking 2014. Gene genealogy was something that my dad was using, 23andMe and Ancestry, you know, to find out his history, and my father-in-law was doing that. But it wasn't something that was used by us as a tool. So she said, Troy, you've got nothing to lose. Colleen came in, I had two detectives pick her up at the hotel, they took her to headquarters. She put on about an hour long presentation. I think all of us were mentally exhausted from hearing her presentation because 
it was like trying to assemble the flux capacitor from uh, Back to the Future. We had no idea what she was doing. All we knew was there, there was promise. Uh, and she said it'll be $750 to do this on the canal murders. And we presented this to the command commander, the my lieutenant, then the commander. Um, and there were just different rumblings of, is this a witch doctor? And this is voodoo magic. And we don't want to do this. And there was hand wringing. And um, again, this is way before the Golden State Killer was caught, I think in 2018, using the same technology. So we're, we're four years prior. So no, nobody had ever heard of it. Everybody was kind of scared. And I kept saying in my team, there's nothing to lose. We're not giving her any information that she could jeopardize this case. All we're doing is giving her some data that I don't even understand a string of DNA and a string of numbers that she's allegedly gonna take a look at. And $750 is, is, a, is a speck in the budget of the city of Phoenix. So, and we were traveling all around the country. Yeah, I wanna pause here because I mean, this is, you have to be kind of, you're putting your career kind of on the line a little bit. I mean, not your career, but just like when you're trying to, push back against these old school people who are just kind of, you know, I mean, back then, I, I've, one of the detectives I'm working with right now on a, on a different project, she got a cold case solved, a huge cold case here in Washington state back in 2014 through Colleen Fitzpatrick. And um, I've also interviewed that detective on the Golden State Killer case. So it's like, I know like in 2014, versus 2023 the idea of genetic genealogy is is totally different but back then like were you a little nervous trying to put your you're really putting yourself out there on this not at all um i i believe with cold case you have to be innovative you have to be cutting edge you have to try something that, that's never worked before i believe that there's no no jeopardizing of the case um we almost took up a collection for the 750 just to do it on our own because we, we believed in it um, we'd been working these cases for three and a half years. Um, everybody kind of laughed at us. They thought he was, they said he's dead. You guys are wasting your time. You gotta, you guys have other cases to work on. But we just kind of believed that we were going to just give it our all. At the end of the day, they didn't have to do a collection cup for the $750. They refused to give up on the request and the higher ups would relent approving the request in early December of 2014, which meant they had approval to give Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick a sample of the so-called canal killer's DNA. And I'll never forget it. I was at, it was Christmas. My extended family was in town. I had a six-month-old daughter that had been born, a baby. And I get this call from Colleen and I take the phone in the other room and she's like, Troy, I think his name's Miller. I think his surname is Miller. So at that point, I don't want to be uh, rude, um, but I have to break away because I have to use what the profiler Richard told us in the VDOC Society. He's in their files. I have to go check the files. Next time on Criminal Mischief with Carolyn and Brandon, part two of The Zombie Hunter. The door storms open to the conference room and in parades this group of uh, scientists. The crime lab is newly built. It's nice. The headquarters is where we're sitting is very uh, dilapidated. It's it's so they don't come to us. We come to them. So the fact that they're walking through the door is just crazy. And I, I had a few phone, missed phone calls from Kelly, the DNA supervisor. So she comes in and they're like, you did it. You got him. It's him. Before I let you go, don't forget to check out our bonus episode. It's available right now. 
And if you enjoy Criminal Mischief, we would love it if you head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the show and tell a friend. It really helps. And as always, thanks for listening. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.